0: get into their head like, how much warm up do I need before a workout to raise my core temperature by one degree to get my heart rate steady state? It might only be eight minutes and you running 20 minutes, you know, might only be 12 minutes. Now you have eight minutes to do DMDs. We know the research has shown if you do a long run and you finish with some quick stuff, you recover so much quicker. So now you have all of these little modalities, but it's an old school sport, right? We get stuck in our brains. And also the big thing is the endorphins come from duration, right? So you just, your drug is to be out there and be out there. So it takes discipline to change direction. It's, there's a little bit of anxiety. There's a little bit of fear. I'm going to go try these things, but I've been running for 40 years. You're not like, okay, um, this this is risky, right? (laughs) Welcome to the Runform Podcast. I'm Bobby McGee, running mechanics expert. And I'm Matt Pandola, your run-specific strength coach. Matt and I have been working together for almost a decade on some of the top athletes in the world, and we've decided to share that process with you guys. Hey, Matt, what's going on? Good to see you again. Uh, I think we missed one because we were working together last week in the great state of Arizona and enjoying some sunshine. I'm having a miserable time here in Boulder because it's pouring down rain. Feels like Seattle.
1: <laughs> yeah, just yeah, with the spring coming, I've actually been out running four days in a row since I got back, which is just amazing. I'm so excited about being back outside. Uh, but the camp, you know, we I think we talk just a little briefly about that. I'm not sure with this, um, we're kind of behind the curtains a little bit sometimes with these programs. So with the details, I'm not really sure what, what we uh, can talk about, but we can, we can talk in generalities here and how we're helping these athletes for a particular team. Uh, really exciting. These athletes were so engaged, Bobby, and it just gives me so much energy back the yin and the yang and the bang bang. I, I get so excited yeah. about working with you. With yeah. These athletes.
0: yeah, no, I, I love the, uh, I love the, the the quick responses sometimes right you work with an athlete there was a, there was an athlete she had a cadence in the in the low 70s like so 144 or something like that was her cadence but her stride rate was like low 70s and uh just real 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 quick intervention and that was uh you know your input my input and that, and that went up into the low 90s where where it should have been for her stature and her her anthropometry. So it's, it's uh, you know you're right every time it's a, just a it's it's just a huge r- a rush of satisfaction right when you when you see an athlete especially the little expressions like oh it's supposed to feel that easy i i, I you know then I, then I love it right then I absolutely love it.
1: Yeah and yeah i think it's important to talk about the elephant in the room a little bit where athletes can feel overwhelmed with all the movements they think they have to do we had actually a coach just bringing that up there's i i don't know if she's going to have time for all of these movements and i said no 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 this will come down to three movements that we would like her to work on every day it takes a little less than 10 minutes and that is the goal and when we showed her the protocol based off her t- diagnostics for for her date we started to um, understand i think where that neuromuscular re-education, I like to call it sometimes, Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. where that connects and and that comes from. So she did those few movements. We saw that cadence go up by about uh, six, Bobby, was it? Mm -hmm. Her cadence. Yeah. And which is magical, right? Or it feels magical, but really it was already there. We're just connecting dots. And so I think, yeah, we're you know, and I think you say it better than me, but you're expressing more of your skill sets that were already there. It's the runner that's um, always been there within you that we're just bringing back out to the best uh, version of you. And we do say, try to do these movements every day. If you miss a day, that's okay, but never miss two. And you know, obviously she did that because we got another video from her on WhatsApp and her her running was clearly clearly uh, better than than that first evaluation so we're we're really excited and I just feel like these these athletes got they have I don't know 20 percent that we can get and they're they're at a high level but but there's so much more we can get and I feel like we're we're catching those things early on enough and, I, and this is the pre-pre-season for a lot of these athletes, right, um, that are getting ready for next year really in that sense. So I'm really excited about about that and building their process up to success over the next six months or so.
0: Yeah, I think before we get into the, the meat and potatoes of, of today's podcast, that's a, always a worthwhile thing saying, right? So the a week later, you get a follow-up video. The athlete is under duress. The athlete has run off the bike. And if we had seen that athlete in profile and didn't know who that athlete was, her gait would have been unrecognizable. You wouldn't know it was the same athlete. It's just so, so dramatic, right? And it's not something that you expect in an endurance sport, right? So the endurance coach mindset is always... Okay, this is gonna take a lot of time. Um, but when you go to it's how I take the weight off coaches too when you're doing coach education, right? Our job is not to teach an athlete how to run. Our job is to reach inside that athlete, shake off what's not the runner in them that they've acquired over time, and leave the runner that they're capable of standing there. So it's 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 a much lower pressure job. It's not oh, you're, we have to completely retool your your forehand in, in tennis. It's terrible. We, we need to break that down, unlearn that, and restart, right? So there is some unlearning that needs to take place, but it's more a replacement conversation. So, you know, the thing that I always go back to for years and years and years, the first time people are willing and buy into dynamic mobility drills or run drills, right they finish that session off and they come back and they say you know I was a little sore in the 48 hours after that workout it was it was a, it was a little uncomfortable for me right and then they get to the point is it like I I really see the value of this I'm really feeling more fluid I'm feeling more mechanically efficient I just I just feel so much better when I do these things and then it gets to that third point oh no I just cannot run without them you know the the, the two runners that I am, with with and without are not even worth considering. I just, that's what I do. I do. You know, so you end up getting athletes doing dynamic mobility drills before a long run, before an easy run, before a recovery run. They're going, you know, it's just not worth running if I don't do these things. So that's, that's the, the joy of, of that process. I mentioned
1: that I've been out running four days in a row over the winter. With between our programs and camps and everything, this was our busy, busy season. And so I I was lucky to get in 20 to 30 minutes on the Woodway a few days a week. That's, I say lucky, but I I planned it, right? But first, what happened was my DMDs, and I wanted to master it, especially so I want to practice what I preach. And I, I feel like I've gotten pretty close to mastery. I don't know if I'd ever say mastery, but. It w- it's amazing the difference. Uh, truthfully, when I go out for these runs, just I'm a stickler about numbers and what you can uh, measure, you can manage. And so I'm just following my own numbers from the year before and my running just feels smooth. It just feels so good. I have to stop myself from going too long or too hard right now. It just feels too good, right? So I can testify to that and I know we're going to get into it a little bit more today. I'm talking again about the leg and the lower lever, but uh, with Boston that just happened, I do think we just mentioned briefly here that we, we do refer with triathlon off the bike and being able to hold your posture longer. Well, that's certainly true in something like Boston Marathon. So again, those of you listening in, thinking it's a different animal because I'm not a triathlete. Well, the concepts we're talking about are uh, being able to hold your posture for that latter quarter or third of the race. And all of these priority models are true for you, too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and we, can, we can speak about that Boston Marathon, too, that the the aerobic demands of Boston are they very high, but they de-emphasize, right? So, you know, the athlete that I coach said, maybe with the downhill course, uh, Eliud Kipchoge might might have needed to give me a call so that we could have just helped him with his eccentric preparation to be able to run 60 minutes for the first half marathon and then have his quads be intact to do that again for the second half of the marathon. And, you know, his his record almost got beaten in London a couple of days later, right? So... It was uh, it was a, a, a very interesting race, but this young lady—it was her, that I was coaching for Boston. It was only her second marathon. Uh, she debuted on a, on a on a fast marathon course um, and went to I think two fifty six was a was a debut marathon, and the emphasis was exactly the same mileage, very similar workouts, but all of the tempo work and all of the gym work was predicated on. A, the correct technique to run downhill and B, the the, uh, eccentric conditioning. And then, you know, so you go look at that. Oh, wow. That covers all the four pillars of run form, right? There was some significant need for um, loaded mobility, which she had to do every single day because (laughs) that's what Boston is, right? That eccentric loading. And there was there was this need for to be really, really resilient around the ankles, knees and hips. So there was the analysis of the downhill run form, working on that downhill run form and then that eccentric loading, you know. And if you're an age grouper in Boston, it is really difficult with the crowds to get through the first, uh, you know, six miles without having to bob and weave like a, you know, (laughs) like like a. The you know a wide receiver you know there's, there's a lot of lateral work that needs to be done in those opening miles, and then getting to 5k one minute behind schedule, getting to 10k you know um, you know 45 seconds behind schedule, and then a huge negative split to go and run at you know a three minute PR, and for, she ended up running 2:51. You know, so uh, it's just uh, amazing. Just shows you how that how important the peripheral stuff was because the the aerobic stuff was the same you know, but you just had to add all of those little details, you know, so that was very exciting.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I just to add in here a, a little bit, I happen to be teaching a, a seminar on Sunday for performance testing uh, here in Reno. And there was a guy who was happened to have run Boston. He was talking to me and, and he was saying, yeah, heartbreak hill. Like, I just don't see how people can possibly run as fast or keep their pace up heartbreak hill. And, there's a lot of dynamics behind that, and, and mental as well. But I had that very same conversation about eccentrics, and have you uh, learned running downhill to step down, step down, step down? You know, there's all these things that that we prepare for, and you know, I would love to to uh, to get into what we're talking about today, which is going to be really the start of of that kind of success, being prepared to within. I'd say a couple to a few months to really attack any goal like this that you have. If you built this foundation from the ground up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing is, you know, uh, stride the power monitor company, they, they work on a, on a, a physiological model. So that's how they designed their, their algorithms to you know, fit with lactate threshold and tempo and all that sort of stuff. But they've got all these wonderful mechanical factors and so, in the preparations when an athlete for a triathlon, you can really see what power numbers they can achieve off the bike. But you can also look at the mechanical factors. So we know they run slower off the bike, but why? Did their rating go down? Did their ground contact time go up? Did all those things change? And then you can make a direct comparison to okay, we're doing this work uh, specifically from 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 the strength. You know, using the four pillars. What what's working? there because we did this series of exercises and what improved? Did the cadence improved Did the ground contact improved Did the stride length improve? So now you can literally track these things and do an evidence-based approach, right? So it's not like you, oh, I think that a skips will help for shin angle. No, you can prove that a skips help for shin angle over a period of time. You know, so that becomes, uh, you know, a, 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 beautiful way to 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 measure your forward progression as you said earlier about your own running right there are various um numbers that you can keep referring back to so you might have a workout the rpe was indicating that you were having a hard time out there that day didn't feel so great out that day but here's a plethora of data that said that that workout was worthwhile that workout represented advancement and progression Whereas, you know, in an endurance athlete's life, there's not a lot of indicators as the weeks go by that you're getting there, right? You're operating in the dark a lot of time. I'm doing all this work. I'm doing all this base work. How's that going to help my ultimate speed, right? But now you start seeing these things, you know? Perfect. Yeah. And, you know, when it comes to
1: an athlete being able to work towards mastery in those DMDs, what I constantly urge, and we, we say this again and again, is if you've got 10 minutes, try to master the first uh, couple or a few movements. Don't don't try to uh, keep going if you're not ready. You know, really give yourself time for that mastery. But if it's 10 minutes and you don't have 20, or you can't keep reviewing videos and looking at those details, then instead of trying to rush that, I would just stay there. Even if it even if it says, uh, well, let's. Let's go to this next week and these next movements. If you feel overwhelmed and you're getting ahead of yourself, then just keep working on those basics until they're just
0: fluid for you and then keep going. So it's not a race to get there. Yeah, I think talking to people about not converting a time based training program to a distance based training program, trying to move away from that number, right? So I measure myself sometimes when I do a drill session. If people come and I'm working for an hour with a group of people, you know, that's, that's three, four kilometers that I'm on my feet for. And a lot of that is bouncing and, and stiffening my leg against the ground. So people can get into their head like, how much warm-up do I need before a workout to raise my core temperature by one degree to get my heart rate steady state? It might only be eight minutes and you running 20 minutes. You know, it might only be 12 minutes. Now you have eight minutes to do DMDs. You have six minutes to do DMDs, right? You're not losing anything, right? You're gonna That's go a home. Point. Yeah. You're gonna go home, you're gonna do a soak, and you go, All right, but I know that that doing some pogos or, or, or little split jumps are gonna get those fast twitch two fibers recovering. We know the research has shown if you do a long run and you finish with some quick stuff, you recover so much quicker. So, now you have all of these little modalities, but it's an old school sport, right? We get stuck in our brains. And also, the big thing is the endorphins come from duration, right? So, you just your drug is to be out there and be out there. So, it takes discipline to change direction. It's There's a little bit of anxiety. There's a little bit of fear. I'm going to go try these things, but I've been running for 40 years. You're not like, okay, um, this, this is risky, right? But it's just continually encouraging people to just Literally suck it and see. Just do six pogos and see how your first rep feels. You'll go, Oh, yeah, why well, haven't I been doing that my whole life? You know?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, and an important point I want to bring up that I'm always learning too, right? So trying to get through mastery in the DMDs and spending the winter doing that, the, the effect sticks longer. So at first, it may be four hours. So we say, Do a few DMDs and go into your run, right? And build that way. But now I know that the effects are sticking longer. I, I have a good 12-hour um, window. I don't have to necessarily get out and run right away. So what's working for me a little bit better at this point, because my going out there and doing my runs for what's called the Reno Tidal Odyssey, I have to run about 50K, so thirty about 32 miles total in that Odyssey. So I've, I've got to get out there and do more running. And so point is that this morning just before this podcast i just worked on my dmds and later on i'll get out there and get my run in so just want to put point that out that the longer you do these the more flexibility you have and and when you can do your dmds what works in your programming but in general because you're going to get out there maybe and start doing more volume maybe that's another thing that or approach you can think about in the perfect world i think you you really focus on these when you're in the postseason or preseason, and you have time to build them up. But uh, again, just in any case, just realizing that the longer you stick with this, the the more it sticks, and the more options you have. Because there are those longer days I have to drive out to where I'm going for a specific course because I want those to to uh, test and retest my numbers from a year ago. So I'm going to use the same course by the time I get back. It's been an hour and a half or or even two hours depending so it saves me time to get my dmds now first thing in the morning but i do get them in
0: yeah and that accelerates your neurological activation period too right so we know that dmds can last for hours and hours and hours If so you get up in the morning we know neurologically doing a hard high quality workout first thing in the morning is not a good idea especially if it's cold or cool all right so get up in the morning you do those dynamic mobilities or in your coffee break, if you have a nice stretchy pair of work of, of pants on at work, do some dynamic mobility drills at 10 so that when you go out the door on your lunch break and you want to do your quality workout on your lunch break, you can go straight into it, you know, because you're ready for that. So, uh, you know, the immediacy of that uh, is not necessary. There is this delay period where all of those benefits stick around. And that's I think that's important for both to Perfect.
1: Yeah. Okay. So working on the athletic anchor going from the ground up, we'll dive into that a little bit and kind of pick up where we left off. Just so people are aware, last episode, we talked more about that windless mechanism where you're winding the arch up and you're able to use uh, the great toe function. You're able to uh, move up the chain with better elasticity. And we're just kind of carrying through on that conversation now, going a little bit uh, further up the leg.
0: Yeah, and we 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 talking, you know, we are going to be talking about the ankle, right? So the the ankle being considered as in 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 the triple springs that are involved in running, the ankle being the the, the first of those springs, right? But I think it's important to just again, you know, mention the arch, mention that lateral nature of the foot movement, uh, that that people don't consider, right? So, I think that, that linear approach that your foot strike, your your Achilles tendon should be perfectly up straight from the moment you land until the moment you toe off. Uh, and that indicates you actually losing access to your plantar fascia, right? So, So, one of the little raw assessments that we've used for a long time is for people to do a little squat, right? So, heels down, initially with your shoes on so you've got a little bit of a wedge under that heel makes it a little easier for you but you're trying to squat down all the way uh and keep your heels on the ground and then how you do that movement is extremely telling right you can see your ankle is blocked in other words there's uh there's a situation that you have more of a hardware situation that you need to address in your ankle or your soleus is too tight right um uh, even even it's a good assessment of your arches, and then it shows you know what what what's going on around knee flexion, and then a huge tell in terms of hips. Right, so if you go into that squat and you're working super hard to get into a pronated position, trying to release that ankle, then it's probably indicating that that your issue is around the ankle. It's either soleus or or the foot itself, right? But if those knees are turning in dramatically for you to be able to hold that squat position then we know it's likely further up the chain and it's in the hips and so on. So a lot to tell there. But I think to me, the overriding message with the ankle is that we, like the foot and like the great toe, we take the 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 ankle a little bit for granted until there's, there's a time for it to work, right? So of late, I've been working with athletes where there's a situation, actually two athletes, where there's a situation with one calf complex, right? So it's either the soleus or the gastroc or whatever, and go straight away to assessing the symmetry of their ankle flexion. And it tells the story straight away. And so now athletes getting into that habit, do a warm-up run, measure ankle uh, flexion symmetry, address the ankle that is behind, uh, and then when the symmetry returns, almost instantaneous reporting of the athlete, oh, that's much better. That's getting better. So perhaps you can say a little bit more about that assessment, Matt, and that that need for symmetry, even if there's a lower range of motion. Yeah. So with the ankle mobility, we um, we get into a half
1: kneeling position and we look at how far away our foot is from the wall. And this again is is in our movement improvement assessments. It's free. But when we look at that, we want, first of all, symmetry as you as you uh, related to earlier. So I look at a minimum of three inches from the wall, regardless of the person's height on both sides. But what I would rather see is that somebody is two and a half and two and a half rather than two and three. So that's the first thing. And depending, again, on height, some athletes get to the point where they're actually about five and a half inches from the wall, right? But I, I we look for at least three. Now, on that, they're... We see this all the time where somebody might be limited there, but yet they do the traditional ankle mobility work. And while that's great, and it can be the result for some, for others, when you look at, for example, that soleus again, and you get that bent knee uh, soleus activation, now we are bringing more stability to the arch. That's a powerhouse of soleus for the arch, as we've mentioned before that yields better mobility for the ankle because you have activated that arch, if you will. So this is something that we see, we saw in camp last week, right? That somebody went from not passing that uh, test optimally to being able to actually now get optimal in both areas with one movement. So in run form, We have a loaded mobility as part of our recovery. Now, one of those movements deals with that bent knee calf raise. And don't exclude that or don't bypass that. I think if I had to choose with the calf, the outer calf is the one that we seem to have paid more attention to over the years, runners, coaches, even strength coaches, right? But for me... I focus a lot more, I feel like, the priority on the deeper calf muscle, the soleus. It's called soleus because it looks like a sole, like a fish, right? And it's uh, not only is pumping blood back up to your heart, so it's referred to as the second heart by some, uh, but also we look at that stability through the arch. And I was just having this conversation with John Hodges. So he is the master physio that I've worked with for years and years on physical therapy on Sunday I was showing him how we do the movement and that people complain that their quads are what seems to give out first well when you take that uh and you do that movement yeah you're gonna feel it in your quads and your quads are gonna burn guess what your quads are a part of this whole system and you need to strengthen your quads isometrically in that position at at least 60 degrees to 90 degrees so people want to stand up in this position that's why we start you with hand support and we even offer in our movement library a variation where the uh, there's a band that'll actually help support you get into that position if you're having a lot of difficulty so just don't give up on yourself. Progress in that movement. It pays back tenfold. I can't stress it enough. Uh, It's eliminated so many uh, injuries or at least helped to prevent injuries. And then on the performance side is things ridiculous what it's done for my right calf. I I used to have calf strains all the time and now I don't. So there's, there's a lot to that, but the listener to understand that we're looking at ankle mobility, I think they just look at that linear sagittal plane, but we have to look at that stability side to side as well. So a movement like that will do that with the support and the stability of the knee.
0: Oh, that's incredible, Matt. That, that, you know, again, just makes things so much clearer in my head as well. And you know, so people also to understand that the soleus is a highly aerobic muscle. It can work for a very, very long period of time. It's an extremely strong muscle. But it's not a muscle that is naturally able to work in isolation. And the stuff that you have designed to be able to do those things, bent knee, brings up that whole concept of hierarchy that comes up so often with analysis. Oh, okay, you're telling me to do this loaded mobility, but but I can't do that. I'm feeling it here well you know you are hierarchically not ready to do that movement that movement is critical so you better go up the chain and strengthen those quads so that you can do that movement because that's where the money is that's where the rubber meets the road and it's it's a hard conversation to have you know because we we want quick fixes but you know when you when you discover something that's the root of the problem it's not the heart of the problem right the heart of the problem is further up the chain and so Having that holistic view, I think, is where our one plus one equals eleven comes from, right? Because I'm seeing something, I'm seeing a result that I don't like, and I'm seeing a reason for it. You seeing the how very often, and that's what I think makes all the magic. But before we go on, Bobby, we were, um, I've
1: got it, I've got it, interrupt for this one point because we were meticulous about the progressions and the order in the program for a reason and when i do talk to people who um have followed the program the results are just we've been getting just so much wonderful feedback but once in a while i'll talk to somebody who's like well i skipped that because i just i couldn't do it and so that's why in the movement library we offered an alternative to build up but in my experience, it's about three weeks and then you're able to progress. And so just want to stick that in people's minds. Um, it's about your process. And so just give it time to build up its time in training, but you'll be pretty amazed at what you can do in a few short weeks. If you really commit to it rather than say, well, I'm just going to skip this one
0: because, uh, I can't do it so that, you know, yeah. just think, think about that. Yeah. This, 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 this podcast might provide you with motivation, but it's not going to provide you with discipline. You are solely in charge of the discipline of running with these things. All right, man. I just want to, you know, come back to we're talking about foot and ankle, right? Last week, we uh, last podcast we focused on on great toe, but with the foot and ankle, just so people understand, how does that foot function when you run, right? So most people are landing somewhere on the outside of their heel. They then transferring the loading process and the cushioning process across the outside of their foot all along uh, you know that fifth metatarsal and then when they just get past that peroneal attachment they transition over towards that first and second metatarsal to come off the ground so what can go wrong right what can go wrong is you transition across too quickly and you go past the first head and that's called overpronation. But the process of getting there is called pronation. Essential, and it's essential from a performance standpoint because it loads the plantar fascia. That's why you often see on toe-off with elite runners, if you have videos or stills from the front, that they're actually coming off a little bit more laterally than you would expect. They're not coming off their big toe. They're coming off sort of between their big toe and their second toe or even their third toe, but that's the plantar fascia unloading. And then it's the hip's job to keep that linear. So you've got some forward lateral motion coming off, right? And then the other side of that is, is you your you foot plant on that right heel, you roll along that fifth metatarsal, and then you never get across. And in the old days, we used to call that supination. And it was the purvey of people who had a rigid arch and a tall arch, right? Nowadays, we know that we don't want to call it supernation because then pronation uh, gets confused as a problem and supernation gets confused as a problem. They're not problems. They're both necessary. And nowadays in the running world, we don't refer to supination anymore. We call it under pronation because we don't want the athletes not to pronate because that's a problem in and of itself. And you often hear it come out of my mouth, right? Okay. That athlete's using only their quads. That athlete's quad glute dominant. That athlete's having to rely solely on their soleus to run and their arch, right? And what we want to do is we want to bring everybody to the party because when everybody's at the party, then the athlete's fastest and strongest and healthiest. So I just wanted to, to bring that up, you know, because the idea is always to say, well, how should your foot move? And then just the opposite of that, there are there are there is a part of the community, especially the faster community, that are midfoot strikers. All right, nobody should be a foot striker. Okay, that means that you running up against your your met heads and you are over flexing your toes and you're trying to do ballet out there and not run. Okay, um, but there, but those midfoot strikers, which has become the popular way of saying this is how the elites run and this is how you should run. I remember a great story from Haile Gabriel Selassie when he ran London, he ran two oh five, he didn't win, and he said, I'm gonna have to learn to put my heel down because I can't run the marathon like I run the ten thousand, you know? And so when you, you know, speaking to people that go, when I run slowly, I heel strike. When I'm doing tempo, I'm full foot. And when I'm going fast, I'm midfoot. So people realize that that changes. But the midfoot is then the ground contact comes just lateral to that fifth met head, And then instantly the foot transitions across towards the great toe and, and that toe position between the great toe and, and the second toe. But what's very important to great midfoot strikers, because of the help of the wedge of their shoe, their heel kisses the ground. There's a moment when that soleus can, you know, release and just fill up again. That posterior tib has a moment to pulse, right? And that's that, Sebastian Coe called it, the heel kissing the ground. So the first thing that touched the ground was the midfoot, and then the heel, and at the same time comes the toe. So you can also see from a spring analogy, from the first spring in the triple spring, that's the loading phase of the plantar fascia and the Achilles tendon. So landing on the ground, absorbing the shock, starting to load the connective tissue, transitioning through midfoot stance, and then everything else playing a role in holding the body aligned forward, utilizing gravity, and then unloading that elastic load that, that, that was loaded.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a good time to mention that with the DMDs that we talked about a lot today, that is in itself a diagnostic, but it allows you to get on the tripod of your foot in these positions where you've got to share that load under your foot, under your heel, your little toe, your big toe. That's that's the tripod we're talking about. And so that just load management allows runners, no matter what kind of foot striker they are, to start to manage and get stronger in those areas that they may not be using a lot of in their particular running gait. And when you talk about triple springs, now that's part of the form drills that comes in the second month. And that's for a reason. So you've been able to make some of these adjustments and now you can start to work on spring loading. And when you tie that in with our banded dynamics, where you might be learning something as simple as a hip hinge and how to extend that hip with proper loading, Now that comes into that transfer of the foot that you're talking about right now, getting those movements down and getting that coordination and control down with our banded dynamics. All those things keep building and tying in. So people, I think, get overwhelmed a lot by hearing all these movements, but that's why we say you just have to follow it day by day and it it
0: builds up in this system. Right, Bobby? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And then, of course, with, uh, with, with foot and ankle, you cannot have a conversation without just briefly bringing up shoes, right? And there's a couple of things that I think people miss with the shoes, right? So training with a regular training shoe that flexes in a certain way and absorbs energy and returns energy in a certain way and then racing in a super shoe can be problematic. You probably have to start training in a super shoe as well. And so one of the aftermaths of training in super shoes that we are seeing quite often is Achilles problems, arch problems, because the shoes are significantly stiffer. And it requires a very good load phase to make sure that that shoe is flexing at the right time and that the loading is active so that you're able to compress that foam, right? We've seen with earlier uh, super shoe uh, approaches that, what happens when you're trying to load that shoe is the shoe wins the battle and the athlete ends up not being able to flex the shoe, not being able to get through mid-foot stance and loading the ankle. So people need to be aware of that. Just as the same way, if you have some sort of a support shoe, especially the modern support shoe where you're trying to use utilize density to control foot motion, is that very, very quickly the part of the shoe that has been purposefully softened so that it encourages you to go that way, will start to collapse, right? So you, you'll you purge the air out of the cells in the foam, and you've now created a shoe that's going to be a problem for you. You know, it's the old thing is if somebody's functioning poorly in a shoe, watch how they function barefoot. Is it the foot or is it the shoe? And that's a very important thing to do. So, so people utilize shoes to help them with problems like that. Obviously, a number one is they have to do the work, intrinsic work of of preparing that foot and getting that foot ready to 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 you know uh, support their gait. But then, if they do wear those kind of shoes, is they have to change them out regularly. So the first thing I do is I look at those shoes and I see, look, the shoe is no longer doing what it was designed to do. It's time to replace that shoe.
1: Yeah. No. Perfect. And and certainly shoes are are more of your scope than than mine, but I've learned a lot from you with a lot of people going more of that minimalist approach, uh, especially, you know, with uh, certain books that came out and and that influence. <laughs> and, you know, and I, you know, I, I look at, for example, doing strides in a minimalist shoe. I like that feeling, getting the feeling, getting up uh, on my midfoot a little bit more, things like that. But then um, I'll switch out my shoes for the the session that day. And so just yeah, To me, it's it's about knowing what works and why it works. And and what you just described, I think, is perfect. Just understanding too, in my opinion, and this I'm just kind of throwing out there, getting your opinion too, Bobby, but I've always believed in one good trail day. And it doesn't have to be a lot of technical, especially if you're talking about an athlete uh, where you don't want to risk uh, injury, rolling an ankle on a really technical course, something like that. But just your foot always has to find different, uh, surface, different, um, feedback from your foot. Uh, those, those kinematics are so important to, to work the whole foot and up the chain. A lot of people will actually say, yeah, my, my, uh, my foot, my calves, my hip, you know, all of that they can, they can feel, but I like to, uh, get in at least one day on trails that can be on a park, switching from grass and dirt and, And various rolling hills and whatnot, or depending on the goal, somebody like me, I'll be out on more technical terrain as well. But that's something I've always believed in just for uh, sort of maintaining that strength as well and uh, and finding those those needs that you have to fill in gaps for your foot contact or your athletic anchoring, I like to call it. So any thoughts on that, Bobby?
0: Yeah, I've I've actually learned something new recently. Instead of being uh, you know, the, you want a safe surface. You don't want a very, very uneven surface. You don't want a loose surface, right? But, but you're always thinking you some sort of cushion surface is good, right? But you and I often see this. You do not, do not dynamic mobility drills on grass or on a synthetic turf. People really struggle with their balance initially. So the turf ups the imbalance of, of the gait, right? It also ups the load of the gait, right? So people with, with the sensitive Achilles, are fine running on a hard surface, they really struggle running on a soft surface because the Achilles can can talk and it has to do do more work as well. But from, you know, we keep speaking about the windlass mechanism, what also happens when you run on a softer surface is your foot is more rigid. It reacts rigidly to a soft surface. So if you have some conditions that are because your foot is too rigid, you mm. might be better off running on a firmer surface. Uh, and so that that that's a that's an interesting distinction. And then just to get back to power and using something like stride is you can you can run those trail uh, trail runs which are so good for you, but you can get numbers back now that make sense. You can compare your trail running numbers to your track numbers and to your road numbers. So that, that becomes a useful tool where people are saying, I don't like to run on the trails because I don't get as much mileage done and I don't go fast enough. You know, it just it just fatigues me very quickly. But the yeah, big just, uh, key with those surfaces, I just want to finish with this, Matt. The big yeah. key with those surfaces is most running injuries come from overuse. And when you run on a trail, every single footstep that you take is slightly different to the previous footstep. And that's very healthy.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And just uh, a point to a marathoner I was working with Years back, uh, Doug Dirks, and he was always running on the roads, and so six days a week, sometimes seven, but probably averaged about six days a week on the roads. And uh, when when we did one day, and it was not technical trails, right, but just one day of sort of uh, grass, dirt, uh, that type of running, we um, we ended up uh, he ended up pring in his in his marathon. I think that that had some good benefits to it but the the rest of the days were on the road still because that was his main emphasis and also as you're referring to is we um we we want to consider that uh, stiffer foot or that that loading on the trails or on the park runs versus the roads um but uh just you know that
0: might be a nice variation i would think yep absolutely well, Matt, I think uh, because, of, because of where we started off with very, very important stuff, I, I, I think we're good. I, I pretty much think we've hit the main points with the foot and ankle. I mean, again, if people have further questions, they can always go to any question and, and pose those there. Uh, but basically, the message is, is take care of your feet because that's where the rubber meets the road. It doesn't matter how strong the engine is. If the feet can't transfer it to the road, you're in trouble.
1: Yeah. Take care of your dogs. And we'll keep moving up the chain with these podcasts. So we'll be diving into our hip steering and really how we get that dynamic trunk control. Those are the the areas that uh, I believe we we tend to um, feel like we're doing, but where in reality, we have to look at the videos and we have to actually realize that we can manage our linear drive much better if we have really strengthened that dynamic trunk control and improved that uh, chain for the connecting the dots. So that's to come, and hope you guys keep listening. Hope you're enjoying. That's great. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. As always, thanks for listening to the Run Form Podcast. And as a reminder, we offer a totally free movement improvement assessment on our Pendola Project website. Here, you can get your own personalized protocol that will help your running today, so give that a try. Also, Bobby and I are experts on any question app where you can ask us, well, any question, so reach out to us directly there. Finally, if you learned anything new today, don't forget to share it with your compadres and leave us a quick review. That really helps us a lot. All the links you need are in the show notes below. Till next time, have a great run.